Hello, Cyberpunks. I'm your host, Brendan Lupus Damon Sandifer, and welcome to our Cyberpunk podcast where we discuss various cyberpunk media. With me today, we have Barry. Hello. Graham. Who says hi? <laughs> but in text for whatever reason. Greg. Hello. Mathadar. Hello. Randy. Hello. Sammy. Hello. And Wes. Howdy. All right. Today we are discussing the uh, 1968 novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. Uh, This novel was the novel that inspired Blade Runner, but apart from sharing a main character, let's just find out how close it ties in. And Barry, go ahead and throw up that spoiler tag. You know how I said I was going to take care of something after pushing the button? I was still taking care of that. Gotcha. So, um, if you're listening, spoilers. If you're just looking, um, it's about to pop up in, like, a minute. All right. So, Rick Deckard, a bounty hunter for San Francisco's police department, is assigned to retire, or kill, six androids of the new and highly intelligent Nexus 6 model, which have recently escaped from Mars and traveled to Earth. Uh, These androids are made of organic matter, so similar to humans that only a bone marrow analysis can independently prove the difference, making them difficult to detect, but Deckard hopes to earn enough bounty money to buy a live animal to replace his lone electric sheep. Deckard visits Rosen Association's headquarters in Seattle to confirm the uh, the accuracy of the latest empathy test to save time in identifying incognito androids. Various style uh, personality tests have been devised. Deckard suspects the test may not be capable of distinguishing the latest Nexus 6 models from genuine human beings, and it appears to give a false positive on his host in Seattle, Rachel Rosen, meaning the police have potentially been executing human beings. The Rosen Association attempts to blackmail Deckard to get him to drop the case, but Deckard retests Rachel and determines Rachel is, indeed, an android, which she ultimately admits. Deckard soon meets a Soviet police contact, who turns out to be one of the Nexus 6 renegades in disguise. He kills the android, then flies off to kill his next target, an android living in disguise as an opera singer. Meeting her backstage, he attempts to administer the empathy test, but she calls the police. Failing to recognize Deckard as a bounty hunter, the cops arrest and detain him at a police station he has never heard of filled with officers whom he is surprised to have never met. An official named Garland accuses Deckard himself of being an android with implanted memories. After a series of mysterious revelations at the station, Deckard ponders the ethical and philosophical questions of his line of work um, and regarding android intelligence, empathy, and what it means to be human. Garland, pointing a laser gun at Deckard, then reveals that the entire station is a sham, 
claiming that both he and Phil Resch, the station's resident bounty hunter, are androids. Resch shoots Garland in the head, escaping with Deckard back to the opera singer, whom Resch brutally kills in cold blood when she alludes that he may be an android. Desperate to know the truth, Resch asks Deckard to use the empathy test on him, which confirms that he is actually human. And then Deckard tests himself, discovering that he has a sense of empathy for certain androids. Deckard buys his wife, Iron, an authentic Nubian goat with the bounty money. His supervisor then insists that he visit an abandoned apartment building, where three remaining android fugitives are assumed to be hiding. Experiencing a vision of the prophet-like Mercer, confusingly telling him to proceed, despite the immorality of the mission, Deckard calls on Rachel Rosen again since her knowledge of android psychology may help in the investigation. Rachel declines to help, but reluctantly agrees to meet Deckard at a hotel in exchange for him abandoning the case. At the hotel, she reveals that one of the fugitive androids is the same exact model as herself, meaning that he will have to shoot down an android that looks just like her. Rachel coaxes Deckard into sex, after which they confess their love for one another. Uh, Rachel reveals she has slept with many bounty hunters, having been programmed to do so in order to dissuade them from their missions. Rick threatens to kill her, but holds back at the last moment before he leaves the building for, um, for the abandoned apartment building. Meanwhile, the three remaining Nexus 6 androids figure out how they can outwit Deckard. The building's only other inhabitant, John R. Isidore, a radioactively damaged and intellectually below-average human, attempts to befriend them, but is shocked when they callously torture and mutilate a rare spider he's found. They watch all, or they all watch a television program which presents definitive evidence that the entire theology of Mercerism is a hoax. Deckard enters the building, experiencing strange, supernatural premonitions of Mercer notifying him of an ambush. When the androids attack him first, Deckard is legally justified as he shoots down all three androids without testing them beforehand. Isidore is devastated, and Deckard is soon rewarded for a record number of Nexus 6 kills in a single day. When Deckard returns home, he finds Iron grieving because Rachel Rosen arrived while he was gone and killed their goat. Deckard goes to an uninhabited, obliterated region of Oregon to reflect. He climbs a hill and is hit by falling rocks, realizing that this is an experience eerily similar to Mercer's martyrdom. He stumbles abruptly upon what he thinks is a real toad, or an important animal to Mercer and thought to be extinct. But when he returns home with it, his wife discovers it's just a robot. Deckard is upset, but very tired and goes off to sleep. Realizing how important this toad is to Deckard, and how devastated he felt when he learned that it isn't real, Iron calls its store to order, a robotic, or order robotic insects for the toad to eat. Finally, uh, Iron pours herself a hot coffee. 
So let's go ahead and move on to our thoughts on how this relates to cyberpunk. So, uh, quick question. After the robot frog eats the robot bugs, does it just, like, pass him out to eat him again later? I don't know. That's a good question. That's not really covered in the book. Okay. Because unless it uh, takes the robot bugs and turns it into some sort of mechanical fuel somehow, like a battery, then I I don't know. You would think that if a robot or android does something that simulates um, basically mechanical cannibalism, that it would be designed in such a way to strip what it, uh, machine it's eating for raw materials like a nanobot would, at least in theory of what the Grey Goo nanobot uh, concept would do, of stripping resources to make more of itself so that it could do its programmed stuff. Hmm. Um, or to do what it's uh, programmed to do, of stripping now certain resources and using that to do at, like thing X like nanobot attacks cancer cells so it breaks down the cancer cells into raw material and then uses that raw material as fuel or as a way of then creating uh, healing gel that the body can then use naturally for self-healing purposes but you would you would think that uh, such a such technology would be available, but then again, what do we know? This is information that we're not really given. I mean, so, put it into well, perspective for out of character uh, experience. What was the publication date of that book? Nineteen sixty-eight. Sixty-eight. Okay, so. Uh, Anything out-of-character technology-wise that's less than 50 years old wasn't invented until after that was published. Correct. Correct. Also, if you don't mind, I was going to say, we do know one other um, uh, example of something like it that caused the problem actually earlier in the book, Hmm. which was when they had tried feeding a robotic animal actual food, uh, which caused it to be broken and damaged beyond repair. Oh. so, because that happened with the repair shop. The repairs broken down animals, which uh, wasn't covered in the review. Um, so, uh, also the fact that if you were to feed robotic food to a organic animal, it would hurt the animal, which is another thing that occurred. Mm, yes. When a guy was trying to help fix up a, a cat, I believe it was, and found it was an actual cat, and freaked out because he said, that's why we have insurance on this sort of thing, we didn't realize it was an actual animal. So like we cut it open to go look at the battery and fix it. Like this is an actual animal, you <laughs> idiot. <laughs> so, um, first of all, many people consider this book part of the cyberpunk genre, probably the first cyberpunk novel. Now, I know some people don't feel this is cyberpunk. Uh, Randy, would you care to enlighten us? Yeah, thank you. So I think a lot of people that think that this is a cyberpunk book are people that watched Blade Runner first, then read the book, 
and their mind are putting Blade Runner visuals over the narration you're hearing. Mm. Because there's not much cyberpunk in this if you actually look at it from a neutral perspective. It is probably one of the more depressing pieces of post-apocalyptia I've ever read. Mm. And that is what it is. I mean, in this book, they refer to something as World War Terminus. Mm. Now, I don't know if the rest of you all know what Terminus means, but the as end. far as... Yes, the end of the line. Mm -hmm. And then they talk about this, this radioactive dust that basically swept its way across the planet mm. um, and forced most of the uh, human inhabitants to leave to the outer colonies. Meaning that what we have here are the remnants of a society that's basically walking around in near fatal levels of radiation. Another portion of the book is that, they, that uh, people have to put on these big lead covered cod pieces to protect their reproductive organs whenever they go outside. Bleak. So, yeah, they're in this post-radioactive or this radioactive post-apocalypse that you don't know how it starts. They don't know how it starts. By the description, we can kind of infer that probably somewhere in the Mideast or Asia, somebody went nuclear and didn't manage to blow up the planet, but irradiated it. Mm. Um, and I'm only using those two because they're pretty much as far away from san francisco as you can get on the globe and not have that topic be public knowledge um so where cyber where blade runner has these you know um neon glowing advertisements all over the place whenever they're going through there no those don't exist in this what you're looking at when they're going into cities and stuff, are buildings in various states of decay. It's some areas are probably going to be more like Fallout than like Blade Runner. Just buildings that are just slowly falling apart because of the radiation and lack of maintenance. See, the the difference I think that should be noted here is that most cyberpunk material generally is a case of this is a world in which it has been ra probably ravaged and very likely ravaged by a nuclear war devastating the planet but humanity has otherwise survived and created sustainable uh very high technology centers and can still travel between these last few cities of the world that's are ba that that's basically uh, mega cities uh, because it has to hold quite possibly thousands if not, not uh, more like billions of uh, civilians. And, and you, other you don't have that here. And you have, you don't have a dying population. Yeah. And and the see, see like that the point is like if you look at it from like the Blade Runner movies and the Judge Dredd stuff, 
you can see where that's cyberpunk because while yes it's gritty and dark and kind of bleak it's also a ray of hope because it shows that the outside world you can't really survive there all that well but the point is is that the outside world is essentially the the equivalent of the Fallout franchise. It's yes. Been nuked to hell. And here it's not really you have the nuke to hell. Everything is just falling to pieces. Mm. Um because of this. And yeah, everybody the depressing part is you read this book and then you think back and realize every character you met in this book is doomed to die. Yeah. Probably within the next 20 years. Because they're all slowly dying of radiation poisoning. The one guy that lives in the apartment, the one they refer to as a chicken head, he's already been radioactively sterilized and is losing his higher brain functions because of radiation poisoning. Mm. <clears throat> so... And, um. The question is, is the uh, description of the cities in the book more like what you find in the Fallout video games, where it's just, you know, things are falling apart through disuse, through um, the structure being weakened? Or is it more like um, if cities were abandoned for, like, 100 years and nature takes over, like plants and stuff? Uh, there aren't much in the way of plants in this. Okay, so it's like the former, not the latter. Okay. Yeah, that's the other thing, is that this radiation dust killed almost all of the fauna in this world, and it can't have done much for the flora either. Um, there is some, and there are some people growing stuff, but it's got to be... I, I would not want to see uh, the radiation level of what they're growing. Mm. It is... This is not a, This is not a world that will live long. It will suffocate because of lack of oxygen and overabundance of CO2. Um, also, on the other hand, on the other, on the other portion of it, also something you tend to see in cyberpunk is who's the bad guy. Mm -hmm. In cyberpunk, it's usually the corporation. And while the corporation in this isn't good, it's not the big bad. Mm-hmm. It's the necessary evil. It's like, hey, it's like a hey. We know we're being evil and greedy, but we're also trying to actually help all of us survive here. Mm. I'm actually not sure of that. It is my opinion, and this is only an opinion. Is that the corporation in here has been taken over by the androids they produced? And they're also planning on basically taking over the Earth. So, Which, proto Skynet. Eh, I wouldn't say that. I I don't think they're uh, responsible for what uh, happened. I think they're just taking uh, advantage of it. I, I have to I have to kind of agree with that. It's like it, it it's not Skynet in a literal sense. It's like a after it's like an after effect. Like the after effect Skynet. It's like Skynet didn't create itself. It didn't do anything to create the situation that uh, puts it in power. Mm. It just 
it it actually is like one of those cases of the androids they're they're only in power because they basically lucked into it. Hmm. Now in they, this one, it's more like the androids are looking and it's like, well, you guys already fucked it up. <laughs> You're gonna die. Yeah. No, no reason for you guys to be hanging around. We're just slowly going to replace you piece by piece. <laughs> and I say that the corporation's the one behind it, or at least the taken over corporation, is because of the whole plot with Rachel to discredit the android scanning. And then to try to seduce Deckard and stop him from being a bounty hunter. They don't want the android stopped. Also, the whole fake police station um, would have taken a lot of capital for them to set up. Because unlike the other areas, they didn't do it out of an abandoned building. They actually built that station. It was shiny and new as opposed to every place else, which was described as being run down and hmm. caved. It Kind of like the, the Institute from Fallout 4 compared to the rest of the world topside. And that's actually, that's actually a good, that's a good analogy. I'm wondering if when they made Fallout 4 and they made that institute, if that's somebody had, had flipped to this book and actually thought, hmm, that's a good idea. Yeah. West world. I, 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 you know, honestly, considering uh, Fallout 3 and the fact that they kind of seeded what, uh, what was going on with Fault 4 in Fault 3 and the fact that now in Fault 4 you ended up having the synths and everything and that you have like the Gen 1 and the Gen 2 synths which there are only like two I think I think you could say there are only two Gen 2 synths and that would be um, Nick yeah, and uh, the guy on in Far Harbor uh, oh right, yeah, that one. Yeah, those are like the only two Gen two cents, and they're like the proof of concept. Yeah, uh, and then they may, ended up making uh, the Gen threes, which are basically full human cents, and um, and they are like literally. Uh, bio machines, basically. Mm. Like, yes, they do have some machine parts to them, uh, like the, like a machine skeleton and brain, but like most everything else is like a is quite literally a very closely matching or on uh, like it very closely matches an organic thing, huh. and uh. The uh, the institute makes them and pretty much treats sense as uh, slaves. So, all right, Mathador, I believe you have something to add. Well, though, no, you asked a question about what makes it cyberpunk or what doesn't, and uh, I just heard a constant discussion back and forth without a break. So, I just been kind of waiting for the opportunity. Um, I would say that the corporation being controlled, trying to subvert authority, even have the police in their pocket maybe even replacing the police with their own corporate police uh just not openly is very cyberpunk 
um, building a brand new police station and manning it full of people that are loyal to the company, which may or may not be all synthetics now at this point. They may have replaced everything. Reminded me a lot of Future World, which was, uh, of course, a movie as a sequel to the novel uh, Westworld, uh, written by Michael Crichton in the 70s later after this. So it definitely inspired that. But that also probably inspired Fallout 4, which you were talking about there, mm-hmm. um, in regards to that. Now, the more human than human was not a motto of the Institute. Uh, neither I don't remember what the motto, if there was one even stated in the book, uh, Do Andrew Stream of Electric Sheep. Was there one associated with that corporation? I was going to try and find that out. I am double-checking. Um, either way, while you're doing that, um, the uh, empathy boxes are a quite fascinating thing that I, I enjoyed a lot in the novel. Uh, kind of, He was going into sociopaths and lacking empathy uh, and how people lose a connection with each other. Uh, you even see that especially with the main uh, couple in the film is uh, yeah, the book, sorry. I've, I've actually seen an uh, animated version of it as well. Mm. But um, it, when, when it comes to the way that they talk to each other, it's, it's oftentimes an example of them just not really showing any kind of empathy for their fellow man. Uh, one of the few exceptions would be mercerism, and they actually have to undergo this empathy, uh, empathy box-like things every morning. They like to have this little ritual with it. Um, sometimes, like, uh, I forget, what's, what's the name of his wife again? I've forgotten it suddenly. Of um, Rick's? Rick's? Is, okay. uh, no, Rick's wife's Ira. name is uh, Iron. I-R-A-N. Iron. Iron. Um, she put her empathy to, or so her, her emotion to depressed, and she was depressed for a big chunk of the book because she chose to be. Uh, when people have the option of being happy all the time, she still willingly chose to be depressed. Uh, that's a huge part of the, of the novel. Um, there are conversations back and forth uh, repeatedly anytime he's at his house or talks to her over the phone. Um, people feel so bad about their situation, as, as uh, you were talking about earlier, very bleak, very post-apocalyptic. And uh, now, uh, from our, our conversation last week, you can see why we were saying that they drew a lot from this novel when it came to Blade Runner 2049. The radioactive yes. dust, the desiccated cities falling apart. Very much like the Las Vegas we saw in the film so, um, with uh, Harrison Ford's character the rest of that. I'm going to interrupt real quick. Go ahead. Um, the motto of the Tyrell Corporation in the movie Blade Runner and in the book the company is given the name Rosen Association is more human than human. So it is actually for the Rosen as well. Okay, I didn't know that. Uh, I couldn't remember if that was just my memory playing tricks on me or if it actually was also in the book. Um, Because the the audiobook I listened to, they had relabeled it and actually called it Blade Runner Novel on the cover, uh, although I knew it was Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Later later volumes actually did retitle Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, Blade Runner. Yeah, just trying to sell more copies. Yeah, uh, Randy, I believe you had a rebuttal. Yeah. Okay. So the stuff about the police station and all of that is basically one chapter in a twenty-one chapter novel. It, yes. So, 
Less than say 5%. that. Yeah, it it doesn't. Uh, it it starts to have that feeling, but then you then it just goes right back to where it was before. It's barely a burp in the space of the novel. Um, the whole uh, concept of being able to dial your moods, as they called it, is only slightly evolved from where I where you saw it in like the works of Aldous Huxley back in the thirties. A brave new world. What's that? That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I had to read that for high so school. So that's, and I wouldn't define that as being cyberpunk either. Yeah. No, uh, I agree. I was just bringing them up because that was one of the more interesting aspects I took from the book. I um, do believe it's. I do believe that both this and Brave New World are should be considered forefathers to cyberpunk. Yeah. Oh they yeah, are, this is a dystopian. This is like a bleak dystopian, uh, post-apocalyptic thing uh, with with some robotic elements that mask as humans similar to if you've ever read it Caves of Steel um, no, which not. deals with Daniel Oliva and uh, eventually goes into the breakup of Mars or Aurora or whatever it's called from Earth which was the robotic colony run by robots with scientists running it the spacers and then there's the Earthers which is the, the people on Earth um, similar concepts. I don't remember which one came out first in regards to the books. They both were like late 60s, early 70s, if memory serves. And I also look at the whole thing about Mercerism as this. Mercerism is basically, it's, well, as the uh, androids eventually reveal, and I don't believe they're lying with this, Mercerism was created by the government. To mm -hmm. basically, a of control. as a method of control and a method to provide the people with faith, in a way, so that they could have this connection with something they believed was basically a miracle, was to give them the faith to keep going on day by day. And like so the androids, miracle. yes, exactly. And of course, the androids' whole thing is to try to poke a hole in that with the with the talk show guy. I can never remember his name. Um, I, I find the most amusing part of that is when they find out, what was it, the projection? Was it a projection of the moon or on the moon? I forgot what it was. Uh, that was a big part of the book, but I've suddenly forgotten it off the top of my head because that was when it was all revealed. Um, I also believe what the androids said about how the outer colonies are basically crap. Because um, mm -hmm. if you think about it, um, space exploration would have been in its infancy when all this happened. And suddenly they had to rush everybody off planet. So the whole concept that people are barely hanging on in these, you know, domes in these domes out here in these colonies is actually very plausible. Also, if they have empathy boxes as well, then they may seem perfectly happy and everything's fine, even though it's not. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, and I mean, if you think about it on a psychological, now this is not pertaining to cyberpunk but you think about an empathy box on a psychological level it's kind of the way you present yourself to other people like when you're socially interacting a lot of depressive people will um try and put on a happy face act like there's nothing wrong when really they're breaking down and there's really nothing not to get depressed about in this. Yes, exactly. 
this entire world is. I mean, I'm like, if they had made this directly into a movie, um, we used to do this thing in a club I was in over the summer where we would have one day where we show the most depressing crap we could. We called it Suicide Saturday. Great. This would have been a Suicide Saturday film. Mind you, the next day was called Saccharine Sunday. And it was the most okay. sweetest, happy, uplifting things you could find. So That's beautiful. Um, I always like to ask, what did this bring to the genre versus, you know... I mean, for this one, I'm asking, is it cyberpunk? I know Randy said no. Um, I'd like to hear the rest of your comments on that one by one, so I'm going to start with Greg. Do I believe the book is cyberpunk? No. I believe the movies both were. I believe the movies were better than this book was. I think comparing... This book to the movies would be like comparing Johnny Mnemonic to The Fifth Element. Mm. All right. Grim. Uh, do I feel the books? Um, Cyberpunk. Cyberpunk? I'm going to say yes. Um, or at least it has enough cyberpunk elements in it to making an honorable mention. All right. Um, Barry? Uh, <clears throat> do I think uh, the book is cyberpunk? No. What did it add to the genre? I actually think it did add a couple of things to the genre, even though the book itself is not part of the genre. For instance, I might not have read the book, but these empathy boxes sound a lot like um, maybe a brain dance to just feel happy, like an emotion chip. Okay. Wes? I honestly agree with the the consensus because it's it doesn't feel like cyberpunk, but it does feel like it helped to pave the way to pave the way and actually set the foundations for cyberpunk proper all right um personally i after discussing this and looking into it more, I would have to agree that it is not cyberpunk, where I know a lot of people listening and a lot of people in general feel this is. You have to think, before this really, or before Blade Runner came out, this book wasn't doing so well. I mean, yes, it was a popular book, but it was nowhere near as popular as after Blade Runner came out and people started seeing, oh, there's this book that it was inspired by. And so they years went after back. it was published, Yerk, let's read this, and they yeah. picture Blade Runner, but the actual description in the book is not Blade Runner. Whoops. No. Now, like I said in the beginning, it does share some characters. It shares a couple plot elements. But I would say, while it did give us 
Blade Runner, you know, one, arguably the biggest cyberpunk movie. Um, it is not cyberpunk. I, I would like to add that uh, sitting back and actually uh, thinking a little bit more on this, it's more like a Blade Runner pre-story. Mean, uh, by which I mean it's it's a uh, it's a non-cyberpunk Blade Runner story mm. that set like that does help to set up the actual cyberpunky Blade Runner uh, setting, uh, or at least it does pave the way for the Blade Runner proper to be actually properly cyberpunk. All right. Uh, Mathadar. Oh, it's definitely not cyberpunk. Um, mostly, mostly the only thing I, I take away from it is it has some elements that other novels also had that were picked up on by cyberpunk. But primarily, we're here to discuss it, at least in my opinion, because it did inspire the film Blade Runner, which was... Therefore, this has relevance because this is what led to that, regardless of whether it is in itself cyberpunk. Uh, earlier, when talking about brain dance, yes, I, I think the emotions probably uh, that or it, or Shadowrun better than life, although cyberpunk uh, obviously predated that uh, with its brain dance. Uh, but uh, in regards to transhumanism, not very much in here in regards to actual punk. I don't remember a single thing that was punk in this whole film. So, <laughs> didn't really have that. Uh, uh, or in the book in regards to that either. Because even in Blade Runner, there wasn't very much punk. But there definitely was uh, uh, robotics and advanced uh, synthetic creation. We didn't really get into that in... Uh, uh, do Android stream of electric sheep outside of the actual animals um, and replacing organic tissue with robotic tissue by replacing real animals with fake ones is something that really came from this that you see in a whole bunch of other things. Although more often you'll see animals that have cybernetic parts in cyberpunk as opposed to being completely cybernetic or a completely artificial animal. Uh, for later things. That includes uh, Snow Crash with the dogs from that uh, and uh, many other novels that have come out since then. Uh, otherwise, this book itself is not cyberpunk. <laughs> Alright, Randy. No, this book is not cyberpunk, but I would like to state that this is basically like cyberpunk's mother. <laughs> there are many elements in here that would be taken and brought into cyberpunk but by itself in this work, no, it's not. It's, like I said, this is post-apocalyptic, which is what was kind of the big kind of fiction in the 60s and 70s, as we all thought we were all going to die in a huge nuclear ball of fire. It was only after we realized that wasn't going to happen that we started to look at, oh, then what is going to happen? And cyberpunk was born. This is literally the generation before. And, and 
what you had just said is like, oh, the 50s, 60s, and 70s was like the decades where we feared nuclear Armageddon post-apocalyptia. That kind of explains the way, uh, the reason why the Fallout franchise, at least when Bethesda got hold of it, became so 50s era uh, science fiction B-movie post-apocalyptic nuclear wasteland. From someone who's played every Fallout game, even before Bethesda got hold of it, I just want to say it's always had that theme. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> new when Bethesda got hold of it. It was always the theme. <laughs> Mind you, Bethesda it took that ball it. and ran with it. Yeah. yeah. Obsidian took that ball and ran with it uh, double time with their uh, Old Lang Sign Old World Blues DLC. So. Well, that was originally based on uh, content they couldn't put into Fallout 3 back before Black Owl Studios went belly up. So uh, a lot of the, especially like Honest Hearts, the whole Mormon thing, that was directly from the original uh, design document for Fallout 3 before they got it got sold to Bethesda, just so you're aware. <laughs> All right. So, Sammy... Sorry, Wes. Go ahead. I was just saying that that was a nice little tidbit of information. Gotcha. So, Sammy, your thoughts on whether this is cyberpunk and what it adds to the genre, if anything? 100% this book is not cyberpunk. It's a running theme amongst everyone here, basically agreeing the same thing. The book is not cyberpunk. We're sorry to all the fans who love the book and think that it is cyberpunk, but it's not. However, did it contribute to the cyberpunk genre? 100%. It is, as Randy said, basically the mother of cyberpunk. It was from an era of unknowing, and yeah, this book has some running themes that is seen in modern-day cyberpunk. So yeah, definitely contributed. All right. Uh, anyone else have anything they'd like to add on this topic? Yes. Two things, actually. First off, since this was published in 1968, this was hot on the heels slash not even when it was over when the Cuban Missile Crisis was still a thing. And people were afraid of a missile. Just any second, the the alarms are going to go off, they're going to have to duck and cover. So that was a clear and present danger for the entire American populace, no matter where in the country. Um, Especially anywhere in the Continental 48. And when you combine that with uh, other things that the book added that weren't around out of character... um, in, in the real world, then there's just so many different things, so many different layers that you can interact with in this book, which I'll, I will admit I have not read, but based on what I've heard here tonight, um, that is what I come away with. Also, the second thing I want to add is the reason we are talking about this in a cyberpunk podcast is if... 
as a random example, one of the other things I happen to like a lot is heavy metal. One of my favorite rock bands is ACDC. But if you mention ACDC and you go into any depth at all and you don't mention the blues, you are severely not digging into the anything deeper than like the tip of the iceberg as far as uh, that's concerned. But that's not what this is about. This is about cyberpunk, not heavy metal. So, but that's the reason why we are talking about this because it is related. It's not directly related, but it is related enough. It must be brought up. Otherwise, enough people will say, hey, wait a minute, you didn't. So we did. All right. Uh, Wes, I believe you had one thing you wanted to add. When everyone wonders uh, about the uh, the mother of cyberpunk, we should we're all just basically pointing everyone to this book. <laughs> yes. Um. Anyone yeah, else? Who did I just cut off? I was just about to make a uh, continuation of the joke. Of like, uh, but like, yeah, and this book is just saying uh, to Cyberpunk in general to eat its uh, peas and uh, take care of its cues. <laughs> Mind its peas and cues? <laughs> yes. Alright. Um, anyone else? Take that as a no. No, I think I said my piece, so. So, um, starting from the alphabetical top, Barry, where can we find you? If you want more of me, you can find me at K-H-Z-H-A-K on the screen if you are looking at the video. Um at uh, YouTube, Twitch, and Twitter. And I don't make much content myself, but if you look at the related channels or the channels I host depending on the platform, there are plenty of things with content I am involved in. Or uh, it's just one of my friends doing their own content depending on the channel. And I generally try to keep my Twitter safe for work, although my pin tweet is not. All right. Uh, Greg? can find me on YouTube on my music video channels. All right. Um, all right. Let's see here. Mathadar. link to those music video channels for anyone that's interested? Yes, I need to download them, and I haven't done so. Just... Uh, you can find me on there. Just put it in Big Papa G. It'll take you right to me. There you go. So you can... Sorry, I didn't want to tell you were doing... We're doing plugs. Um, yeah. Oh, no, I know. I heard. Uh, I just heard a question asked and wanted to make sure that was answered before I kicked in. Um, anyway, yeah. all I was going to say was uh, you can find me on the Thanks for Nothing podcast. I'm also here. Uh, also on uh, YouTube. Um... Uh, unfortunately, to find my full name, it's not by Mathadar, but you can look up Mathadar and you'll actually find one of my videos, so it'll link to my channel that way. Um, I don't really have anything else at the moment. Um, I'm still working on it. I'm planning on having another YouTube channel. When that opens, I'll let you guys know, uh, because we're about to start a farm. 
and I'll be covering farming stuff on that channel uh, when that happens. So, because we're about to move in the next month or so to a area way outside the city. Uh, well, that's my update. Nice. Uh, Randy. All right, so you can find me uh, weekdays at 11.30 Central Time, um, streaming video games with my friends Matt and Aaron. Uh, we do Borderlands on Mondays and Thursdays, and we kind of alternate between Phasmophobia and, Cyber or, and uh, Phasmophobia and Conan Exiles on Fridays. Mm -hmm. And we do Lotros Sunday night at 8 p.m., uh, you can also find me Wednesday nights at 10 p.m. on an earthly podcast where we talk about all things Doctor Who. All right. Um, Wes, anything to add? Uh, nothing from my end. All right. So for those of us that didn't speak, because I skipped them, and for um, Wes, well, for most of us besides Greg, uh, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch by searching Gen Cyberpunk Pod. Our YouTube channel is Generation Cyberpunk. And we have a red bubble where you can go get an awesome Generation Cyberpunk face mask. And just search Gen Cyberpunk Pod. If you want to hear more from our group, that's what I meant when I said uh, from basically all of us besides Greg. Check out the Thanks for Nothing podcast on the FML Productions YouTube channel. We also do various D&D campaigns on that channel and are in the process of making an animation. Uh, if you want to donate, we do have a coffee link in the description of our Thanks for Nothing podcast. Those donations are welcome, but by no means necessary. Next week, we will cover Cyberpunk Red with a very special guest. Please stay tuned to our social media, uh, as we will be posting pictures there of the special guest and Cyberpunk Red. And until then, we will see you later, Cyberpunks.